Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. 97.1 FM Talk. On Demand Audio. Wiggins America. I am not a number. I am a free man. Wiggins America. The only thing I'm going to need from you guys right now is a cup of coffee. Wiggins. Today's global economy waits for no man. America. Today's global business climate is like whatever, dude. Politics is a dirty game. I'm not sure we want to play. There are forces here at work that you couldn't possibly understand. You have no idea how high up this goes. Welcome to Wiggins America. I said a couple weeks ago that the big story soon was going to be the congressional debt fight. That doesn't really happen. It hasn't materialized. This is Ryan Wiggins. This is Wiggins America. We do have some guests coming up. Uh, we have somebody who's arguing a case, a uh, Pacific, Pacific legal attorney who's arguing a case before the Supreme Court right now. There were oral arguments this week. Looking forward to talking to him about property rights. How important are property rights to you? Also, we're going to talk about mortgage communism or credit score communism that has been implemented by the Biden administration. We talked about this last week some. I've got a lot more information. Share that probably at the end of the show. We'll talk about that with Trisha. And Old Roy and Trisha will be here for some different things as well as usual on Wiggins America. There's a wide variety. We cast a wide net. But first, this topic about the congressional budget fight, the debt limit fight. I don't know if you're paying much attention to this. Most of America is not. And in fact, that is a very good thing because once America starts to participate in this debate, usually it doesn't go well for Republicans because Republicans typically in these negotiations don't want to spend more money. And in fact, they passed a budget this week in the House. Republicans mostly did. I think there was a little bit of bipartisan support and some Republicans that defected. But they all, the, the, the budget that passed, the Congressional Budget Office, which is supposed to be nonpartisan, I'm not convinced that they always are, but they try to be. They look at things through a nonpartisan lens and they look at how this budget or this whatever program will affect the budget. In this case, it's the budget itself. They've said over 10 years, this would reduce our federal debt 
by 4.5 to $5 trillion. Now, that's not enough, but you're never going to get Democrats to reduce the debt. They just don't do it. They talk about it as if they want to, but they don't ever do it. So starting there, I think, is a very good point to say, look, if we pass this as is, over 10 years, nobody's going to feel any pain from it. You're just going to reduce excess spending on things like green energy, because that is a big part of that. They're fighting back and saying, well, you can't take away our green energy spending bills. We passed those. They were called the Re- Inflation Reduction Act. Remember? Yeah, it was called the Inflation Reduction Act, and it just spent more money and caused more inflation. Only in politics can you get away with that. Even just blatant lies. But I do think this is a good budget that's passed. It may not be perfect. I'd love to see deep cuts, but these are small cuts that will lead to a better budget. It won't pass. Of course, it has to go through the governor's or the governor, the president's desk and the Senate, which is held by Democrats. So it's not going to happen this way, but at least they're moving on it and at least they have a plan. McCarthy's actually been very good about talking to the media and telling them, look, Biden won't even sit down to discuss this with us. And that's where I, I draw that point to say that once America starts to participate and it becomes a media event and people are aware of it, they paint Republicans as the problem. Until then, if there's no discussion, if there's nothing happening, if, if America isn't paying attention, it's probably better because Republicans lose their backbone real quick when the media turns against them. So I'm actually glad to see that. But let's talk about this. Wow. Wiggins America. Uh, we can't leave the week without talking about Tucker Carlson, especially here in the first segment. Let's, let's discuss, shall we? On Monday, it was announced that Tucker Carlson had lost his job and Don Lemon had lost his job at the same time. The difference between those two, it seems, is that Don Lemon lost his job because nobody was watching him. Tucker Carlson lost his job because everybody was watching him. Very, very different tales. Vox, I pulled this article from Vox. They are not a right-leaning organization. They are hard left. And they wrote an article called Tucker Carlson was doing something different and darker than most Fox hosts. And that's why his departure really matters. It says it may sound odd to claim that a TV host losing his program is seismic news for American politics. But with Tucker Carlson's exit from Fox News, that claim is justified. Now, they go on to sort of smear him. And that's what's happened over the last few days. If you pay attention, Uh, here's a weird little story. Whenever I got my iPhone, my first iPhone, and I actually just upgraded this week, so same deal, I never told the phone what my politics were. Because if you swipe left, you can see the top four news stories at any given moment, and they shuffle around. I never told the phone what I like to see, which you can do, because I wanted them to just populate it for me as a blank slate. Just tell me what you're trying to convey to me, Apple News. And of course, most of it is, it's centrist in that they're grabbing lots of different stories from different sources, but for the most part, they're using mainstream media sources, which are leftist by nature. So most of what I see is left-tilted news. And so the reason I did that is I I wouldn't have any sort of color to anything that I do. I'm just seeing what a, a blank slate would see. 
this week, I've seen, as you may have, without trying, a lot of smears about Tucker Carlson and why he was fired. Now, there's a lot of speculation. The best I've heard that I, I think really fits is that they didn't tell him this was happening and that they told him Monday morning at the same time as they basically told everybody else, and he didn't know um, because the, the timeline seems to match. He didn't say anything. Now, I will play a little bit of what he said at the end of this clip, but I do want to point out that of all the smears and people are saying, well, he said racist things or misogynistic. They can't actually figure out how to smear him because when I looked into some of these articles to find out, oh, is there anything here? Expecting, of course, that there wouldn't be. There wasn't. What I found was buried in the New York Times smear article against Tucker Carlson in about paragraph 10 was the actual substance of what they were talking about saying that he was misogynistic. Do you want to know what it was? It was one of those random texts in the discovery process of the Dominion lawsuit where he said something negative about Sidney Powell. That's how deep they've had to go that they are defending Sidney Powell, which they've never did in the past because Tucker Carlson said something negative about her. Now, I've not even seen what the actual text was, but... <laughs> That's how far it's gotten. I do want to stop here because we're going to break. We're going to come back. I want to play just a little bit of what Tucker had to say this week on the way out. Our current orthodoxies won't last. They're brain dead. Nobody actually believes them. Hardly anyone's life is improved by them. This moment is too inherently ridiculous to continue, and so it won't. The people in charge know this. That's why they're hysterical and aggressive. They're afraid. They've given up persuasion. They're resorting to force. But it won't work. When honest people say what's true, calmly and without embarrassment, they become powerful. At the same time, the liars who've been trying to silence them shrink and they become weaker. That's the iron law of the universe. True things prevail. Where can you still find Americans saying true things? There aren't many places left, but there are some, and that's enough. As long as you can hear the words, there is hope. See you soon. about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? 
Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. One, two, three, four. Mexico was too hot, and Wiggins Canada was too cold. Wiggins America, just right. The memories of a man in his old age are the deeds of a man in his prime. You shuffle in the gloom of the sick room. How would you like to be Jesus Christ in a video game? Welcome back to Wiggins America. I don't know that I agree with this. Uh, this sounds like a mess. And a lot of things I'm okay with doing things in a new way. You know, if this was some sort of somebody who had good intentions and it just didn't go right, maybe that's what this is, but it just sounds like it's a mess. Uh, this is a video game where you get to be Jesus and play out the video game scenarios of biblical text. Um, for example... After 40 days of fasting in the desert, you basically get a magic fireball to fight with Satan at the end of the 40 days. And then you have to destroy dark crystals and pray before you can perform a miracle. It's, uh, it's a mess. Uh, the, the founding member of this group that made this is called Geeks Under Grace. So I think this is a Christian group, uh, which among other things, they review video games and they're not opposed to this game, but they say, I actually, I'm, I'm reading the quote here. It's kind of what I said, which is, I don't want to naysay anyone who's trying to spread the gospel, but people can tell the difference in quality and the thing that is good and a thing that is bad. And this does not scream quality. So I haven't played the game. I don't know that I will, but even the concept makes me a little weirded out that you like gain, you know, fireball functions and stuff by doing the right biblical moves. It's just, it's a mess. Uh, Unrelated, completely unrelated, although he probably knows more about Jesus than we do now. Harry Belafonte, he uh, died this week, died at 96 years old. He uh, died of congestive heart failure, failure at his New York home. He was famous for being a singer for a long time, but then he became a fairly fairly well-known actor. And there's a reason why I bring this up today. It's because he is in one of the best Last Person on Earth movies ever, which is, if you follow this show at all, you hear me talk about Last Person on Earth films with great regard. And he is in one of the best of them, The World, The Flesh, and The Devil. The Last. Where is everybody? The Last. last. It's not the end of the world. There's all the time I need and all the time I want. The Last Person on Earth. I miss the noise, you know? I thought I was going to be alone again. There's time now. So The World, The Flesh, and The Devil came out in 1959. This is one of the best Last Person on Earth movies ever made. And I'll explain again in case you don't know this about me. It's one of my hobbies to seek out every Last Person on Earth movie, TV show, whatever I can find and consume it. I'm trying to read books too, but it just takes so much longer to read a book about the topic 
than it does to watch a movie or a TV show. But I've got pages and pages of these things. And in this case, it's actually the number two last person on earth film ever made on my list because it hits all three criteria, which are A, you are the last person on earth or earth-like place. B, you are the last human being in the universe, which doesn't have to be on earth because that happens a lot too. And C, you wander around a place where there should be people. There should be population. There's evidence that population exists, but it's not there for some sort of mysterious reason. So it's kind of an empty city scenario usually. Well, this one hits all three of those criteria perfectly. It starts with Harry Belafonte in a cave. He's a miner, and he is working underground in sewers and whatever when this event happens. We don't really know what the event was, but it's 1959, and the implication is that it's nuclear poison, something like that, that happens. Well, when it happens, there's a cave-in, traps him, so he's completely isolated, and he is also isolated from the poison. So he's one of the only people who survives, and when he digs his own way out, it's actually one of the more fascinating parts of the movie, is the very beginning, when he can hear people digging toward him, but then it just stops. And he's like, uh, I thought you were going to rescue me, and they don't rescue him. So he has to dig his own way up to where they got to, and what comes out, and there's just nobody anymore. They're gone. There's nobody in the world, and he's in, I think, New York City, walking around, empty city. Very interesting to see how they even do that a lot of times because it's tough to pull off. And he only finds one woman, and it's well into the movie. I just think it's really cool. There's a lot of social dynamics in this one where he's a black man and she's a white woman. And in 1950, you know, now you'd see that and you'd be like, this is, this is actually a very common plot in the movie. Back then, that was, of course, very risque, and you were like, oh, what's going to happen between the racial politics? But there's nobody else around. So ultimately, it doesn't really matter, and that's kind of the point, I think, of even bringing up that, that issue. Uh, but then there, and I won't give away too much, but they do end up finding one other person, and then I'll leave it to you, whether you want to see this. It's actually a pretty good movie. It's a little bit slow at times. It is 1959, so it doesn't move as fast as things we're used to, but... I highly recommend it. It's called The World, the Flesh, and the Devil, and it is on the list starring Harry Belafonte, the late Harry Belafonte. Stick around. We'll be right back. The memories of a man in his old age are the deeds of a man in his prime. Shuffle in the gloom of the sick room and talk to yourself. FM Talk. This is Wiggins America. I've been talking about property rights this morning. Actually, what I'm really talking about is this mortgage communism that is going on. But this is this is another issue, so I don't want to conflate those two issues. Uh, we want to talk about something that I saw that's going on at the Supreme Court. Saw this article, pulled it up from NBC News. It starts like this. The Supreme Court seemed receptive Wednesday to a 94-year-old woman's claim that a Minnesota county violated the Constitution by keeping... in profit when it sold her home in a tax foreclosure sale. 
So that's the base. That's what's going on in this case. And then it mentions a conservative group, which often litigates property rights issues, calls the practice home equity theft in this case. It is asking the Supreme Court to end it. The court, which has a 6-3 conservative majority, is often sympathetic to property rights claims from people like Pacific Legal. And I saw Pacific Legal and thought, oh my gosh, I talk to Pacific Legal all the time. So we have David Dearson from Pacific Legal, who is one of the attorneys on this case with us this weekend. Hello. Hello, Ryan. Thanks very much. Yeah, I really appreciate being able to go right to the source. I mean, you guys are right there arguing this case before the Supreme Court. Kind of sum up what's going on here. Sure thing. Well, you know, I think like you said, the um, the issue is that in about a dozen states plus D.C., the government thinks that it can take your entire home in a tax foreclosure, no matter uh, how much you owed and no matter how small your tax debt was. So, for Ms. Tyler, uh, her, her base tax debt was about $2,300. Government tax on interest, penalties, and fees, that figure balloons to $15,000. They take the condo, they sell it for $40,000, and they keep everything left over. Uh, we think that's a, a taking without just compensation. It's prohibited by the United States Constitution, and uh, we're hoping that the Supreme Court will see it the same way. And oral arguments have have are they done now? Is that how that works? Yep, that's right. Oral arguments are done. They were uh, they were yesterday. I uh, I had the great honor to get to sit at the council's table uh, while my colleague Christina argued the case. Um, on a personal note, it was uh, my first time uh, ever seeing a Supreme Court argument uh, live and in person. So that was uh, that was pretty neat. I, I was, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Before we get into the, you know, the meat of the substance here, I, I wanted to ask, what is it like to, to argue a case at the Supreme Court? I mean, this is like the Super Bowl for your industry, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it's very exciting. Um, you know, you're, you're in awe of the institution. Um, it's, a, it's a much more intimate uh, room than, than I had expected, than I, think, uh, than I think other people might probably expect. It's a pretty small room. Uh, there's not much seating. Uh, and when you're at the council's table, uh, the the justices uh, are, are 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 behind their dais, but they're really right on top of you. Uh, and actually, you know, they're they're so high up, it's sometimes hard to see the faces of the shorter ones, particularly when they lean back in their chair. Um, so it yeah, it was uh, it was very neat, and I and I definitely felt a lot of. Uh, a lot of pride in our work and uh, a lot of awe at, at the power of the institution and uh, a lot of optimism that uh, that we're going to solve this problem nationally. When these household names come into the room with you, you know, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, Elena Kagan, whoever, they sit down. Do, do they already have their mind made up? Do, are you actually arguing or do they kind of know what's going on when they sit down? I, you know, I think they certainly know what's going on. They're 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 well prepared for each case, uh, and I think you know, to some degree, they they certainly have their leanings. Uh, but I but I definitely think that oral argument um, matters and it it plays a role. Sometimes it's just you know in the details. Uh, so the justices may may be leaning towards ruling one way or another, but. They may have some some concerns about some of, you know, legal technicalities or facts in the case. Uh, and that's why it's so helpful for them to hear directly from from counsel and oral argument. I think the other thing that happens a lot is that they've already 
you know, had their debates in, in private chambers. Yeah. They know where the other stands. And so a lot of times the, the questions that they're asking to the argument, arguing counsel are really designed um, as questions to each other. And they're sort of trying to persuade each other through their line of questioning. Ah, that's that is so interesting. I'm, that's why I'm, I'm glad to talk to you this weekend, because that kind of stuff is just interesting to me. Now, let's talk about the substance of this case. This ultimately looks to me like a Fifth Amendment case. We're talking about Bill of Rights property rights. Why is this so important to the rights of an individual in America? Yeah, you're absolutely right that the primary claim is under the Fifth Amendment, and it's, uh, it's the claim is that there's been a taking without just compensation. And the Constitution says the government can't take property, private property from you without paying you for it. And, uh, you know, it's been described by, by the Supreme Court in the past, I always love this phrase, and we, we certainly cite it in a lot of our work, that the, the underlying essential purpose behind that takings clause is to ensure that nobody gets singled out for a burden that in all fairness and justice um, should be borne by the public as a whole. And I think that is really a big part of what's going on uh, in these cases. You know, the, some governments argue that well, it's really, you know, a huge problem when people fail to pay their property taxes. It, you know, it, it, it messes up our ability to run our, our public services. And that's fair enough. Um, but what they can't do is single out, you know, a particular person and say, well, uh, you know, because so many people didn't pay their property taxes, you in particular are going to be forced to contribute more than your fair share uh, to cover for that. And of course, you know, people who have equity in their homes, they're not intentionally failing to pay their property taxes. They're not trying to get away with anything. Um, oftentimes they're, they're you know, uh, among the most vulnerable members of society, uh, the least fortunate. They may be uh, impoverished. They may be uh, ill or dealing with an illness in the family. They may be elderly. And a lot of times they might just not even know um, that they're that they're in danger of foreclosure because the, the government often fails to provide the kind of notice that's required. And that's no surprise when you consider that the, the incentives are structured in a way that the government makes a huge profit. Sure. Um, if you don't know about it. So so unfortunately, we see uh, we see insufficient notice quite frequently. Now, that that particular issue is not um, is not at issue in uh, in the Tyler case at the Supreme Court. Or at least it's not uh, not yet, but um, but but we see it all the time. David Dearson from Pacific Legal is on the phone with us. He's arguing this case before the Supreme Court. He's an attorney on the case. You know, I can't help but think, I, kind of a roundabout story here, David. But I was uh, I met a guy from Nepal once whose parents had been fairly wealthy. I wouldn't say you know mega wealthy, but they they had done well for themselves in Nepal. And he described to me. Um, just his life, and he wasn't a political activist or anybody. It was just somebody I had met once. He said the reason that they came to America is because when a communist government took over in Nepal, they would go out, and they had farmland, and that was not easy to come by in Nepal. It's a very mountainous country. And so if you owned land, it was very valuable. They said they would come out after that communist um, government took over, and they would just look around their property to see red flags. If there were any mm -hmm. red flags tied around their fences, that meant that the government had essentially seized their property without them being able to do a darn thing about it. And they 
obviously they they fled. I think they got what they could and they they left the country for that reason. And that's that's where I my mind goes when I hear property rights. It is the right of the individual, not the right of the government. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's dead on. And you know, there's actually another claim in the case too. In addition to the property rights, um, the the takings claim. There's also uh, an alternative claim that uh, this is an excessive fine. You know, the Eighth Amendment rather famously prohibits cruel and unusual punishments, but it also prohibits excessive fines. We think that the the takings claim is is the better fit. Um, but you know, just in case the justices don't agree. Uh, we think they should rule that, you know, in the alternative, it's, it's an excessive fine. Although I'll say uh, after the argument yesterday, uh, I'll, I'll put it this way. I was feeling optimistic about our chances at winning the takings claim before the argument. And after the argument, I'm only more optimistic. That's great to hear. Every article that I've read on the topic seems to say, yeah, the justices did seem inclined to agree with Pacific Legal here. So uh, that's that's good news, I imagine. You guys are pretty happy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, David, we appreciate your time, especially just being able to be there at the Supreme Court arguing these cases and to, to make time for us here in St. Louis this weekend. Always appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much, Ryan. I appreciate it. And listen, I want to let your listeners know if they're interested in learning more, we maintain a website, homeequitytheft.org where we have detailed information about the tax foreclosure laws in all 50 states. So no matter where your listeners are coming from, they can learn about the laws in their state. Uh, and uh, and I encourage them to check it out. Homeequitytheft.org, is that right? That's exactly right. Homeequitytheft.org. If you are in a situation that you don't really know what your rights are or you know somebody who is, that's a great resource. David, again, thank you for your time. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it. All right. And this is Wiggins America. We will be right back. Trish is going to come in this hour, and we've got Old Roy coming in next hour, so stick around. A 10-minute drive from the Gold Coast back makes you show your pleasure bound. And it's 4 o'clock in the morning, and all the people have gone away. Just you and your mind and make sure drive, and tomorrow is another day. And the sun shines fine in the morning time, tomorrow is another day. Hello, Ryan. Hello, and good weekend to you. Good weekend to you, too, sir. I want to catch up with you on some of the stuff that has been going on with you, eventually, in the next segment. You tell me when you're ready. But in this one, I want to do some quandaries. It's become a a mainstay, a staple of the show, if you will. It's one of my favorite things now. And I'm not saying that sarcastically, even though most of the things I say are sarcastic. I I actually really like this segment. Good, because I... The rest of them, not so much. But this one, I really like. Agreed. I would have taken that sarcastic. I'm glad you said that. No problem. I can count maybe on one hand the amount of comments I've ever heard you say that weren't sarcastic. Yeah, I have I have a hard time with sincerity. Yeah, yeah, terrible time mm-hmm. with it. Very, very tough trash person to talk trash to in general. Sincerity. Um, so here are the quandaries. Now, these are a variety of things. They're, they're mind puzzles. They're moral quandaries. 
I find them and I put together a few and bring them in sometimes for just me and you, sometimes for me, you and Roy. This time Roy's going to be in the next hour. So I figured me and you would go ahead and do a couple of these quandaries. I've had a chance to read over these. You have not. You're coming in cold, but you're really good at them. We'll see. I, and I be mean a test. that with no sarcasm mm-hmm. attached either. You're actually very good at these. Here's the first one. And it's it, this is saying it's like Doctor Who doing it, but they're just putting a character into the scenario, okay? So if Doctor Who goes back in time and gives a copy of Beethoven's sonatas to a young Beethoven, and then Beethoven publishes them, who actually composed the sonata? It's Beethoven. But he received them... From an outside source, in this case, the doctor. But the original creation was a grown Beethoven. But young Beethoven never wrote them and then published them. Well, where would they come from if they weren't written by Beethoven? Exactly. It's a paradox. Right. But it's a fun paradox. It's called, apparently there's a name what for this What do you one. think? Do you think Beethoven didn't write them? I'll explain, but here, this is called the bootstrap paradox, apparently. It's named after Robert A. Heinlein's time travel story by his bootstraps. I don't know. I have any idea what that was. But it's a theor- theoretical paradox that occurs when an object or information is sent back in time and becomes trapped within an infinite loop. Yeah. The mm-hmm. item or information so in case does not ever have an origin. So here's the way I would answer that question if, if asked to. Because that's kind of the answer right there, is that it's a paradox. There really can't be an answer. Trick question. It is a trick question. But if you ha- if I had to answer it without that explanation, I would say, well, l- like, let's say this actually happened. You know, like, th- instead of it being theoretical, we're saying, yeah, this this is the case. Beethoven received these. He never wrote them. Well, then how would you explain what happened? The way that I would is that, You'd have to say that time, we view time in a line. And in this case, that would prove that time isn't linear, that time is flexible. Sure. And you maybe could create different timelines because maybe the original still exists. And now you have this new one. That's the theory of time travel. Yeah. So that's how I think you'd have to explain it. But who created it? Well, you'd have two different timelines or time is an infinite loop. It's not a line. In that, which I think is theoretically means that it couldn't happen because oddly, the major religions of the world do address that issue of time and time travel in that they say time has a beginning and an end. That is a finite line that really can't be tampered with, or at least the big events can't be tampered with. Like if biblical prophecy says this is going to happen. What you're saying is then there are fixed events in the line of time Mm -hmm. that can't be tampered with. Even if you don't know how they're going to happen, they're going to happen. Whereas this would suggest that's not true. You can tamper with time and therefore you have either multiple timelines or time is in a loop. This is why you don't tamper with time. This is why time travel gets super dangerous. Yeah, Even when you're you're thinking about sci-fi fiction... It gets very murky when you start to try to flesh out a story because Agreed. it's it's a mess. My preferred, now I'm not saying I've always written this way because I do write a lot, but the way that I write time travel stories typically is that you either are creating a new timeline because you have to be, because you can't, you can't alter the past in a way 
that would affect the future because you would affect too much. But any altering of the past affects the future. But that's what I'm saying is that at that moment, you you just branch off a new timeline. Like the original still exists that you came from, but you just entered into a new one. Or you Can your characters jump back and forth? uh, It depends on the story. But if you also can go back in time and you can't tamper with anything. So you can interact with people, you can do stuff. So you can move around on that line, but you can't change anything on that line. At least change anything significant. So you could have a conversation, but the minute you go to tell somebody when they die, you lose your voice, you know, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. All right, number two. This is called Zeno's Paradox of Motion, apparently. At around 500 BC, the Greek philosopher Zeno came up with a thought experiment slash paradox that proves motion is impossible, logistically speaking. In this thought experiment, Zeno stated that for motion to occur, an object must move from one place in space-time to another. Using an arrow as reference, he said, if an observer were to stop time, you would notice that the arrow was not moving in that instant. The arrow had to be either moving to where it is or moving to where it isn't, yet in any given instant, the arrow is motionless. So if any instant no motion is occurring, then no motion can occur in any moment, and therefore motion cannot happen. Are you following this? Sort of. It's pretty convoluted. It does seem, this one seems really weak to me, mm-hmm. that you're essentially stopping time. Which would freeze everything would in freeze motion. Everything. Yeah. But that doesn't I, mean motion doesn't exist. Maybe there's something deeper here that I'm not grasping, which is why I brought it to you. I don't think so. This sounds like some guy that just wanted to hear himself talk about. Yeah. In 500 BC. Yeah. Yeah. Stupid Zeno. Yeah. Stupid Zeno. And I don't, I really don't. If somebody gets what this is going for in a deeper way, let us know. Trisha and I, yeah, because we're not getting it. To me, that doesn't prove that motion doesn't happen. The only thing I can picture is that he's saying if you stop things and you look at what, what is going on in any given instance and you look at that arrow it's not moving okay fine because time has stopped but then if you fast forward to the next moment like how do you even break up moments because there is something there in physics that scientists do not understand about time that they say ultimately we can't figure out why time only moves in one direction because in physics there's no reason that it would only be moving in one direction Time should exist kind of however it ever however you want, but it, we only see it in one movement. So there's something there that I was not quite grasping that maybe maybe somebody else. Are they will. saying if you pause time and you jump ahead a beat, things would would or wouldn't move forward? Well, they, they, move the, forward? The, the objects would move, but there would be no you would never see movement. Is what they're saying. So, how do you define movement? I think is what he's getting at. Oh, I again, it seems like these are just sort of stupid scenarios that I don't. Think that guy's dumb. Yeah, some of them are so fun. Got, but no, I'm just kidding. I'm one, sure he's super smart, and I'm just missing something. It's such an ancient philosophical. I mean, it has a name, mm-hmm. so that made me think. Well, maybe there's just something more here, but I, I'm not getting it. Last one. Okay, and I'm going to give these people names because the 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 prompt does, but it gets a little. They say the name so many times that I'm going to actually give them last names. So it's John and Bill. I'm going to say John Carey, 
and Bill Paxton. Okay. Okay? Mm-hmm. So now you got faces to go with yep. it. John Kerry taught law to Bill Paxton with the condition that Bill Paxton would pay the tuition fee after he had won his first case. So he's his protege. Long after Bill finished his lessons, he did not get any case. He never got a case. Either on purpose, so that he never had to pay for the lessons, or simply because no one ever hired him. John Kerry, who trained him, then sued Bill in small claims court for the tuition fee. Now, now you're the judge, okay? Mm-hmm. So you have to decide between these things. John thinks, if I win the suit, then by verdict, Bill will have to pay me because he won and Bill lost. But if Bill wins, he will also have to pay me because our agreement says that he'll pay me when he won his first case. Ooh, sneaky, John. Right? As such, it would be wise for the court to simply make Bill pay me. Bill's defense is... If I win the suit, then by verdict, I needn't pay John. If John wins the case, then I still won't have to pay him because I haven't won any cases. As such, it would be wise for the court to throw out his suit. Do you follow? Mm-hmm. What do you think? If you're the judge, what do you think? Because it's a brilliant move by John. Yeah, I think John is, yes, John has the upper hand here, in my opinion. I would like to see the initial agreement. Do they have this in writing? And when it says won a case, were there any stipulations to that? Yeah. Won a case that you were... I think boiling it down to its its basic, basic level. So yeah. John and Bill are both lawyers. Mm-hmm. John trained Bill, said, when you win your first case, you pay me. Bill never won a case because Bill, Bill never, never took a case. Bill never got a case. Mm-hmm. But, so, so technically, so, yeah. per, per the agreement, Bill doesn't owe John anything. Right. John made a bad deal. Yeah. Except for John found a way. He found kind of a loophole here. Yes, to make this deal better for himself. Yeah. I I would have to side with John. I agree. I agree. John bested him. I I, kind of think he just got outsmarted. Mm -hmm. I really don't get Bill's um, side of the story. I don't get what he's like his argument here, which is, well, if I win the suit, then I shouldn't have to pay John because I'm the winner. But then that's harkening back to the previous agreement. Mm-hmm. That's where John got him. Yeah. Because I think that if you take that to court, the, to this court that we're in here, um, yeah. John would probably lose. Bill would probably win. Bill didn't yeah. violate any terms of agreement. Yeah, exactly. Until he wins until that. He wins the case. And then all of a sudden. I agree. Yeah. I mean, it's devious. It makes mm-hmm. me go, mm-hmm. dang, John's a mm-hmm. dirtbag. <laughs> what John's probably going to have to do is then take Bill to court again mm-hmm. over the win. No, You mean Bill would have to take John back? No, I think John Bill Kerry. would win that. Bill Paxton yeah. would win that case. case. And he would say, I'm not paying you anyway. And John would say, well, now you've won a case. You have to pay me. Yeah. At which point I think John would probably have to take Bill back to court to get, to get money. that money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you're living in the real world. And I think you're right. Thanks. (laughs) Good job. Thanks. You too. I think we solved some of those. Again, if you have some sort of deep insight, you let us know. At Radio Wiggins on Twitter. We're going to take a break here. Come back next hour. And Trisha's going to be back. So is Old Roy. We'll be right back.
971talk.com. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod. There is another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.